Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Annie Mitchell, please introduce our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Melkite Catholic Church of America and pastor of St. Elias Melkite Parish in San Jose, California. <laughs> Father Sebastian Carnazzo earned his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies at the Catholic University of America and has taught at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary of the Fraternity of St. Peter, St. Patrick's Seminary of the Archdiocese of San Francisco and Christendom College, and continues to teach Biblical Studies and Catechetics for a number of institutions. His dissertation was published under the title Seeing Blood and Water, a narrative critical study of John 1934. He's also the author of many articles and a contributor to a number of multi-author works, most recently, The Great Adventure Bible from Ascension Press. He is, of course, a frequent lecturer for the ICC, as well as a teacher in our Magdala Apostolate, Father Sebastian Carnazzo. It is good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we got a great topic tonight, bound by the law. Do you feel restricted? I hope you won't when we're finished with this lecture this evening. So what do we mean by law? What do you think of when you hear the word law? I think you might think of the word bound. Bound by the law is, is a quote from Romans chapter 7. We'll be getting, that, getting to that text at the end. But what do we mean by that? What do we mean by law? When I hear law, what do you think of? Anyone? Anyone? Joan, what do you think of when you hear law? Or I think of Moses. Okay, good, Moses. All right. Now, but you're getting too biblical on me now. Okay, I just said law, bound by law, bound by the law. You're right. You're, you're right. We're in a biblical studies topic tonight, so you're thinking along those lines, and you are absolutely right. But, Teresa, what do you think of? Maria, Teresa, you, you raised your hands. Anything? Think of rules of uh, things that restrict what I can do and what I... Yeah, listen to that language by the law from St. Paul. Yeah. Maria? I think about government oh, and the people that make those I try laws. not to think about the government. 
But let's get to a, a better talk. Maura? I think about not getting in trouble because I'm good at it. <laughs> Especially with the government this time of year with the IRS. Okay, so all right, so what do we what do we think when we say law? When we hear the, the word law appears all over the Bible. And what we're gonna find out tonight is that it's a, a bit of a mistranslation. So let's dig into the background to all this. And we're going to start with, I think, a topic that you might be surprised you, and that is Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, the book of a wisdom book. So let's jump over to Proverbs chapter eight. So open up your Bibles right in the middle and you get to basically your wisdom literature. If you're in your prophets, rewind a little bit, get your wisdom literature, keep rewinding until you get to Proverbs just after the book of Psalms, Proverbs chapter eight. We're just going to skim here because we're we don't we don't have a whole lot of time here. So I want to want to hit a lot of topics. Give you make sure you please write these things down so later on you can do this study on your own. Hopefully, maybe you're teaching a Bible study in your parish or with a a, a local group of Christians, and you can share this or something. So please, hope, hopefully, you're taking notes here. So Proverbs chapter eight: Does not wisdom call? Does not understand and raise her voice on the heights beside the way in the paths? She takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town. At the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call to my cry to the sons of men. So she's, this is personified lady wisdom, to use biblical studies language. Lady wisdom doesn't appear, and I don't think, anywhere in the text. But if you look in the Bible, and especially in the wisdom literature, you find that you have this lady wisdom, this personification of wisdom, Okay. We'll talk more about this in a second. Let's keep going. So in, she's calling to the to the people out in the street saying, come to me, come to me, and I'll and, and I'll feed you with, with what will nourish you. In fact, she describes in some places setting a meal of a beautiful feast for those who will come through her door and feast. She's contrasted in the book of Proverbs and other wisdom literature with, with this lady of iniquity who is like a prostitute luring men into her dark lair, right? Beyond, we can't go beyond that for tonight. There's a lot, that could be a whole talk tonight. Okay, so so chapter eight, chapter eight, verse 22. Chapter eight, verse 22. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So the RSV here I'm reading from has created. That's an okay word, but it it's a little restrictive in our English translation. Created means something that came about at a certain moment in time. So uh, the the word in Greek, katizin, does mean to make or create. But it's being translated, it's a translation by the Jews in the Septuagint, 200 years before Christ, translating the, the Hebrew word kana. Kana means to purchase, possess, to have, to own, and all of these words and these ideas all kind of come in here because we're talking about a mystery here, and that is God's word. So what, look what it says here. The Lord created me, possessed me, had me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there was no depth, I was brought forth, when there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth. So it goes on. And on. I, I recommend reading the whole thing. If you never read this text, it's very beautiful meditation upon the word of God or the wisdom of God, which is the same as we're going to see here, even given in the biblical text here. Now, that's chapter eight of the book of wisdom. 
I strongly encourage you to read the whole thing. Basically, it's saying that God created the world, the universe, the cosmos through his wisdom. That might sound a little strange to us because of what we might think of the word wisdom or something, but let's, we'll keep going here. No, and I think we'll find some, some help. Turn your, in your Bibles, a couple books over to the book of wisdom. So you come to Ecclesiastes and then uh, Song of Solomon and then wisdom of Solomon or the book of wisdom, wisdom, chapter seven, wisdom, chapter seven, verse 22 and following is very similar to what we just read. But there's a few extra little bits I'd like to note here. So wisdom, chapter seven, verse 22, wisdom, the fashioner of all things taught me. This is the author speaking here in the voice of Solomon. For in her, there is a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, etc., etc. Verse 24, wisdom is more mobile than motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. She is the breath, this is verse 25, the breath of the power of God, a pure emanation of the whole of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, an image of his goodness. Though she is but one, she can do all things. And while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. So, so before we continue here, so why she, she, she? Well, Semitic languages only have two genders, grammatical genders. Of course, in science, there's only two genders as well. But that's another topic. So, so in grammar, in Semitic languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, the uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, and et cetera, the, these languages have only two genders. All nouns fall into one or two categories for their their grammatical constructions. That's strange for us in English because we're an Indo Europe. We we speak an Indo European language. Indo European languages have three genders. Masculine, feminine, and neuter. But for Eng modern English speakers, gender is almost gone from our language. If you've studied Greek or Latin, you can hear the older way of these three gender gender categories. All nouns and basically in about equivalent numbers fall into these three genders: masculine, feminine, neuter. Now, when we talk about gender in English, we think of we think of natural gender, right? Male or female. And and that's a and so when we hear about this thing, we're starting to think of those lines. Why do these these words? Why are these grammatical categories in our grammatical studies? Why do we refer to them as masculine or feminine or neuter gender? Well, because we're human beings and we have natural gender, so we've we put upon this grammatical construction a term that makes sense to us. And the reason why it gets this terminology is because. When we're talking about a natural gender of a male or a female animal or human being, then the, a particular gender category corresponds to that, and therefore we call it male or female gender. So, for example, o aner in Greek. O aner, that's the masculine gender. Why is it using the masculine gender in Greek? Because it's a man. E gine, that's the feminine gender in Greek. Why? Because... And it's the natural gender as well. But in Greek, there are tons of words that are in masculine and feminine that have no genitalia. Okay, so when we're talking about animals, human beings, we we you have a correspondence here, but when we're talking about trees, hills, books, dog or desks, 
floors, windows, ceilings, houses. Okay, those all are going to throw be thrown into one of these three categories. To ask the history of language, and sometimes actually a word will pop from one gender to another, grammatical gender, uh, in uh, the history of a language. Okay, example in Greek. I can think of a couple examples. It does not change natural gender, of course, unless you're in the modern world. Okay, so so the when we're talking about gender, it, for us as English speakers, it comes a little confusing to hear she, she, her, right? Wisdom in English, we would put that as a neuter word. If you ever wonder what the gender of a word is in English, just throw in the pronoun. So wisdom is great. It makes me smart, right? There's your gender. If I said he or she, you said what? Okay, so in English, gender has almost completely disappeared from our from our our grammar, and the neuter category has taken over all nouns, except for animals and human beings. Even with animals, though, the bull ran across the pasture, and he jumped the fence. You're tracking with me, no problem. I could just as well have said the bull ran across the pasture and it jumped the fence. And you would not have flinched. You would have said, oh, you messed up your grammar. The cow gave lots of milk, for she was a Holstein. The cow gave lots of milk, for it was a Holstein. No problem, right? It, it, both of them work in modern English. So what we've done with even, even with animals that are male and female, we've even put them into it range. And then, but it, when we're talking about human beings, there's still clear gender Grammatical category corresponding to natural, natural gender. The man ran to the store. He went through the door. I would never say the man went to the store. It went through the door. Right. So you would. So it, that doesn't work in modern English. Who knows? As far as the English is going, who knows where things are going to go? But but the but when we come to a text like this in the wisdom literature, the the word wisdom in most of the Bible will be just. If you're going to say word wisdom, and then they're going to give you a pronoun in the next sentence to correspond, they're going to use it. But in the wisdom literature, the translators in English are at a little bit of a, 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 a battle, internal battle, because you're coming from a Semitic language that only has two genders anyway. And then two, in the, pro, in the wisdom literature, you have a personification of wisdom often as this lady wisdom who is welcoming men of the city in to dine at her feast. And so there's the, the translators, a little bit of a frustration here. What's he going to do? I, I, I don't know what to do. I would say in the wisdom literature, I'd probably most of it place it, 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 it is the pronoun. And then when you get in this, a few places where you get this personification, use she or her, but whatever the case may be. Okay. So that just explains for you what's, what we have here. So in chapter seven, chapter seven, verse 22, the wisdom, the fashion of all things taught me for in her there is a spirit that in it, you might put here, just because we're not personified wisdom here. Verse 25, for it is a breath of the power of God, a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defile gains entrance into it. For it is a reflection of the eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, an image of his goodness. Verse 27, though it is but one, it can do all things. And while remaining in itself, it renews all things. In every generation, it passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. Oh, underline that word, friends of God and prophets. That's going to be big for us here. 
And for God loves nothing so much as the man who lives with wisdom, for it is more beautiful than the sun. There's, you almost have to use the feminine here because the man that lives with wisdom, you're getting a, a feminine sense here. So, but it, for it is more beautiful than the sun, excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with light, it is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night that is light is. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. If you've read the Gospel of John, you know what John was doing there, right? Okay, and chapter 8 is a classic example of the personified wisdom. Solomon talks about pursuing wisdom like a bride. It's a very beautiful chapter. Anyway, so that's, that's I would highly recommend for you, chapter 7, chapter 8 of the book of Wisdom, chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs that we just read, the whole thing if you can, and then chapter 9 of the book of Wisdom, chapter 9 of the book of Wisdom, O God of my fathers and Lord of my mercy, this is called person. this is called uh, in, in Hebrew, you have a re- repetition in their poetic devices, a repetition of terms, synonymous parallelism, which they'll say the same thing twice. They love this. If you've been reading the prophets or the Psalms or wisdom, you've heard this a thousand times. So once you know that, you understand how the poetic device works. So, O God of my fathers, Lord and Lord of mercy, same thing, right? The God of my father was certainly a Lord of mercy. You know the story of my fathers, okay? Who has made all things by thy word, and by thy wisdom has formed man. The most important part of his creation, right? So wisdom and word are identified here very clearly as the same. And that makes sense now when we look at what we saw in, in, in Wisdom 7, in Proverbs chapter 8, that, that somehow through the wisdom of God, he created the world. We think, oh, wait a minute. Yes, that's right, Genesis 1. He spoke and it came to be, right? So his word and his wisdom, you know God's word if you know his wisdom, you know his wisdom if you know his word. Okay, now the uh, wisdom literature is filled with this kind of imagery. We should have a whole lecture on this sometime, but let's move on now to Sirach 24. So move over in your Bibles to the next book, Sirach chapter 24. Sirach chapter 24, wisdom will praise herself itself, and will glory in the midst of her people. In the assembly of the Most High, she will open her mouth, and in the presence of his host, she will glory. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High, and covered the earth like a mist. I dwelt in high places, and my throne was a pillar of cloud. Alone I have made the circuit of the vault of heaven, and have walked in the depth of the abyss. In the waves of the sea, in the whole earth, every people and every nation I have gotten a possession. Hmm. The word of God, the wisdom of God has gotten a possession among all nations? Yes. If you've ever read the wisdom literature of ancient cultures and things, you can find truth in there. You know, one of uh, Confucius's proverbs, something, if your only tool that you have is a hammer, you approach everything as if it's a nail. I think that's Confucius. I don't know. But hey, that's pretty, yeah, I got that. That's pretty good. (laughs) I like that one. Okay, so if you read these things, you'll find in ancient wisdom literature of the, uh, the even the pagan world, you'll find some elements of truth there. How could they get this? Well, it's called, it's called natural revelation. Romans chapter one, Paul talks about this. If you've never read Romans, please read it tonight. Romans chapter one, Paul talks about how, how God revealed himself to all mankind through his creation. 
right? When you look at what someone has made, it tells you something about the person. If you look at a beautiful painting, you say, wow, that guy's a really good artist. Or you look at a painting and it emphasizes certain things. You say, wow, that artist is really focused on certain elements, right? Or you, or you might say, wow, that's a really ugly painting. Boy, that's a really bad artist. Or that's a nice painting, but I mean, artistically, but it's really bad in what it's, it's, it's focusing on. Okay, so it tells you about the, the moral character maybe or something of what that artist is, right? So the, when you look at a chair that was built by a, a, a carpenter, is it a good chair or a bad chair? Is it a good carpenter or a bad carpenter? Cabinet makers are classics, right? A cabinet maker is the finest of craftsmen and when it comes to wood, right? That thing's got to work just right, the cabinet maker, right? Everything's got to fit just right. Well, if the cabinet isn't working right, the doors don't always close properly and whatever – bad cabinet maker. But if you open a nice cabinet, these are nice cabinets. You got a master cabinet maker there, right? So when you look at God's work, when you look at creation, it tells you something about the creator. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. This is what we're hearing about in Sirach chapter 24, that among all nations, I've gotten a possession, he says, or it says, or she says, wisdom. But verse eight, then the creator of all things gave me a commandment. The one who created me, there's that word, Teasing in Greek, in the Septuagint, or kana in the Hebrew, possessed me, had me. The, the whole point of this word, they're trying to grasp this mystery, trying to explain this mystery, that, that God's word is distinct from God. In this case, what we would say, God the Father and his spoken word, to use Trinitarian language. But, and yet the same, there's this identity there. And this is the Old Testament. We've got to cut up some slack. Okay, so then the creator of all things gave me a commandment, and the one who created me... At, assign me a place for my tent. And he said to me, make your dwelling in Jacob and in Israel, receive your inheritance. Sonos pluralism. And from eternity, from the beginning, he created me. And from eternity, I shall not cease to exist. In the holy tabernacle, I ministered. And then you have this description of how God's word was implanted among the people of Israel in a special way. And, and then especially in Jerusalem, right? This is the tabernacle that Moses made, Mount Sinai. And then Jerusalem with the ark coming in and the temple and all that. Verse 18, come to me, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my produce. This is that same language you hear of Lady Wisdom. For the remembrance of me is sweeter than honey, and my inheritance is sweeter than the honeycomb. Over and over in the Bible, the word of God is like, is, like, is like honey. You hear that? Those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. You know, the gospel of John, you're hearing an echo there, right? But something different. Jesus, no, he who eats, he who comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. Hmm, wait a minute. What's going on there? Come to that in a second. Okay, whoever obeys me will not put, will not be put to shame. And those who work with me and my help will not sin. All this, highlight this, verse 23, is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, the law which Moses commanded as an inheritance for the congregation of Jacob. It fills men with the wisdom like Pishon, like the Tigris, like the Euphrates, like the Jordan, like Gihon. This is all creation imagery, right? Verse 30, I went forth like a canal from a river and I like a water channel into a garden. Okay, so the word of God is described here as like water that gives life. To creation it sustains it so everything has been created but it's the word of god or the water this river of life that comes forth from god that sustains it that keeps it alive 
Okay, so Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 7, Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, Wisdom 7, Wisdom 9, Sirach 24. Hopefully you wrote those down. Now we see here in chapter 24, a new word that we did not yet see, verse 24, the law which Moses commanded. And right there we're thinking of, of course, Sinai, right? The law. So when we hear the word law, what do we think of when we hear the word law? We might think of rules or something, as we heard in the in the discussion earlier. And that's fine in English, but when we're looking at an English text of the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, what's the text behind the text? Because sometimes there are some English translations that are uh, sometimes accurate and sometimes not so accurate, or maybe are a little bit more misleading if we're not so careful with them. That just has to do with translation. So the word here in the Hebrew is Torah. Torah. I'll write it on the board here. And for the sake of speed here, we'll just do everything in English. So Torah, the word Torah, you've heard this word before. That's the Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word Torah, the root of it, its root does not mean law in the sense that we use that in English. It means direction. Direction. Okay? So, for example, in 1 Samuel, when David is trying to figure out whether or not he is going to have to flee from Saul, this is 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think. You remember the story where Jonathan shoots an arrow to let David know whether or not he should return to the camp or not. The word to shoot the arrow there is the same root as this noun. It's the verb form of this noun, to direct, to shoot. And it's causative. It means it pushes the thing in the direction it's supposed to go, okay? Direction is a good English word, to direct. That has a good English sense of the same thing in the Hebrew here. Okay, so so when we hear the word law, we should be hearing the word direction, Torah, but Torah is a Hebrew word, so okay, whatever. So now, let's direction, instruction. Instruction is also used as a, a, a good translation of the, so to direct someone, instruct them, and educationally, in a sense. So where do we get this word law from in English? Well, the Hebrew word Torah is translated with the Greek word nomos, nomos, in in Greek. This is in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, L-X-X, is it's abbreviated, right? The Septuagint. So the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew text and the Aramaic text of the Bible into Greek so that the Jews could read them wherever they were in the world, because Greek was the language that united all of Judaism all over the Mediterranean. Where would they hear the word of God? In their synagogues, right? Synagogues in Corinth or Rome or Alexandria or even Jerusalem as a testament to the, word, to the Greek influence. The word synagogue is not a Hebrew word. That's a Greek word. Synagogi means it's a Greek word meaning gathering. So Greek was extreme. It was the uniting language of all Judaism by the time we get the first century. That's why the first century in the in the Christians, when they that were all Jews in the, the early, that early stage, they wrote in Greek, right? The language of the Jews. Okay. Now, uh, the word nomos in Greek originally meant in its origin. Order, thought, idea, logic, to use an English word from a Greek word here, uh, system. Order or system might be probably the best there. 
In Greek, the verb here from the same root, if, uh, nomizin, nomizin to means to think or, or conceive of or believe or accept. So if someone said, you know, what do you think about this? I'd say, ah, uh, nomizo, I, I think uh, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm understanding or believing in the situation. So it has a wide range. Later in Greek, it ends up becoming a little bit more narrow into uh, this word nomos. But when we're looking at late Greek, we can't we can't translate our New Testament based on late Greek. We have to translate based on how the Septuagint, the Jews, translated Hebrew into Greek, because New Testament authors are writing Greek based upon their hearing of Scripture from the synagogues, which is the Old Testament in Greek. So when we look at nomos, though nomos can certainly be translated as the word law, when we get into English, it's like we're getting bottleneck upon bottleneck upon bottleneck. And so now when we think the word law, we have rules, something that tells us what we have to do. But that is not what the word really means in its, in its depth, and its, its range, especially its history, nomos, especially the word Torah. Okay, direction, instruction. All right, so now I love that example from, from Jonathan of shooting the arrow, right? God gives us his Torah, his direction, his instruction his word, his wisdom, so that we might go to where he intends us to go. But we ignore his direction. We fight against his direction like a bad arrow, and we often miss the mark. As people have noted in, in, the, the, in the Greek, right, to, the word to, for sin is to miss the mark, right? So it's, a, it's interesting. We, we, miss, we, we don't go where we're supposed to go because we didn't follow his word. Okay, now, so what we heard in all this wisdom literature, we heard a bunch of Genesis creation imagery. So let's go back there for a second and talk about that. So Genesis chapter 2, we're not going to, be able to read this. We've done whole studies on the Old Testament for the ICC, you, and so you can always uh, refer to those. But in chapter 2, we hear about the creation of man, and then God says this to him. This is in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. So he put him in the right spot. Everything was perfect for him. And the Lord commanded him. Oh, there's that word, commanded. We're going to see that again. Saying, you may freely eat of the tree of the garden, the trees of the, any tree of the garden, every tree, it's all yours. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or that is the tree of knowledge, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, a lot of bad theology has been developed upon a bad reading of that text. Notice it does not say, in the day you eat of it, I will kill you. The day you eat of it, I will punish you with death. doesn't say that. The day you eat of it, you will die. Any parents here know how that works. I think I warn my children about 300 times a day with language in the same way. I, don't ride down the driveway, down the hill without a helmet on with your hands up in the air. You could die. If the ball rolls out in the street, don't go get it. You'll die. A car will kill you. Right? We warn our children with these things all the time. Parents are constantly warning their children about the dangers of things in this world. Things that are good. Cars are good. Streets are good. Vices are good. Don't use that knife. You're going to cut your finger off. And things that we don't allow our children to do when they're young are things that we allow them to do when they're older. And it sounds like contradictions. Can I help with the dinner? Can I chop the broccoli? No. You can chop the celery only. Can I use that knife you're using? No. 
you can use this knife. You hand them a nice little butter knife. And they chop a little celery and they get a help with dinner, right? But but when they're older, can you imagine they come back from college? Dad, can I help with dinner? Yeah, sure. Can I chop the broccoli? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I use that knife right there? Yes, absolutely. Here's the cutting board. What happened? Did dad change? The kid changed, right? God doesn't change. He's immutable. His word is immutable. It does not change. We change. Okay, so and that's important. We get into the New Testament here to understand that. All right, so now... Uh, Genesis chapter two, again, if you haven't read this, please. And we have a whole studies on this Old Testament study. Andy can put these links in for you. Okay. Old Testament studies where we cover all these things. Now, after man is cast out of the garden, what, what happened? Well, he, he didn't trust in God's word. He didn't have faith. Faith is an old English word. It means trust. Okay. So I, I would, we would do very well to take the word faith and just jettison it from our English language because it is so abused, misused misunderstood in modern English. In fact, it only gets used now in English in religious contexts, which in no, most of those contexts are a total disaster. So, so uh, it'd be better to just replace that with a regular modern English word we use, and that's the word trust. Everyone knows what trust means. Do you have faith in God? Do you trust God? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? That's all it means. Okay, so, so they did not trust the word of God. God gave him his word. This is what you do. You're going to live. This is what you do. You will die. It's a warning. Son, stay close. Stay close. Hold my hand. We're in the parking lot here. Kid doesn't listen. Runs from the father's side, gets hit by a car and dies. Child was punished for not obeying the, the word of the father. No! The, the child died as a result of not adhering to his father's word. And why did he not adhere to his father's word? He did not trust that his father had his best interest in mind. The child ran off after some balloon or something or a ball flying or whatever, and did not listen to the father. So Adam and Eve do, they do not listen. They do not trust that he has his best interest in mind. And, and therefore, they have to be out of the garden. They're out because there's a tree now, as St. Ephraim says, that is much more dangerous than any tree in the garden ever before, the tree of life. The tree of life was there intended to give them physical life for eternity. So if Adam was injured in the garden... I don't know, a tree falls on him or something like that. Eve could give him fruit from the tree of life and he would come back to life. He'd be healed. He could not die. This was intended like medicine. The book of Revelation talks about the tree of life and its fruit, its leaves, like medicine. But now if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which they're going to grab for immediately, they're going to live forever in their bodies dead to God. Spiritually, they if you, look, if you don't have trust, there's no relationship. A husband that can't trust his wife, there's no marriage there. The wife can't trust, gone. Children can't trust their husband or their parents. Parents can't trust their children. There's no relationship. To the degree that there's lack of trust is the degree that there's lack of relationship. So Adam and Eve did not trust God. And the sign that they were dead, that they had broken, they completely did not trust his word, is that they were now afraid of their nakedness in front of him. Uh, a new, newly married couple or older couple, married couple, no, have no fear of nakedness before each other. Parents with their little children, there's no fear of nakedness when they're bathing, them, right? The kids don't say, oh, daddy, mommy. I'm, I'm, no, you, this is when, when the child's getting their diaper changed. There's an, there is a relationship of trust there. A doctor and a nurse and a patient in a, in a hospital room. Some of you have probably been in that situation. All right, strip down. 
and you're sitting there laying naked on the on the table in front of a nurse and a doctor, and you don't even maybe you even know one of their names, but you know that you can trust them. There's relationship. So Adam and Eve did not trust God, and lack of trust broke the relationship. And therefore, when God came on the scene, they ran to hide themselves because they knew they were naked. And they hide from each other because when you break your relationship with God, you immediately break your relationship with fellow man. Man is made in the image likeness of God. There's an old catechetical image of, the, of a wheel. God's the hub, we're the spokes. The farther we get from God, the farther we get from each other. The closer we draw to God or to each other, vice versa. And so there's a connection there, an intimate connection you can't get rid of. St. John says in his first epistle, how can you say you love God whom you cannot see and hate your brother whom you can see who's made the image of You're a liar. There's no way. Okay, so, so now God sent them out of the garden lest they eat of the fruit of the tree of life because their spiritual death is going to be eventually result in a bodily death. And they could feel it. They knew it was coming. And if they eat of the fruit of the tree of life and get eternal bodily life, well, spiritual death... That's called damnation. And so God, as a loving father, would not allow that to happen for them. He sent them out of the garden, just like you sent a kid out of the kitchen because they, they were messing with the wrong knife or they were doing something. Get out, you can get hurt even worse. And so he sends them out of the garden and then he begins a plan to bring them back. And the beginning of that bringing them back, that plan is we hear about it in Genesis chapter 12. And you can just make a note of this. We've covered in the Old Testament class, Genesis chapter 12, verse three. God says, he calls Abraham and he says, through you, all the nations shall be blessed. Through you, all the descendants of Adam will have the opportunity to come back into the kingdom of God, back into the garden with me. The purpose, when God calls someone from a people, he calls them for the sake of that people. And so, and so God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I'd write this down, that through you, through your descendants, as we hear in the rest of the Abraham narrative, all the nations shall be blessed. God's not a Calvinist. All the nations shall be blessed. You know the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the and the and the descendants of Jacob and how they went down into Egypt and how he finally brought them back out of Egypt. Stories we covered in our Old Testament study. Eventually, he brought them to Mount Sinai, following a river of life, following that water. Right? They come to Mount Sinai, and God gives them His law. You can write this down. This is Exodus chapter 12, 24, chapter twenty-four, verse twelve. Chapter 24, verse 12, where we get that word again, that word Torah. He says, come to me up on the mountain, and I'll give you the Torah, the commandment, the law, whatever you want, however you want to translate it there, the direction, the instruction for life. Now, when we talk about the Torah, the law of God, we often are referring to not simply the Ten Commandments or something like that. We're talking about, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses. We're not talking about just some, some, a, a little law or something that was given at Sinai, but the book of Leviticus is included in there. And in fact, the book of Genesis, is in, the story of Abraham is part of the Torah, the instruction. In fact, the vast majority of the Pentateuch is actually stories, not propositions, which should teach us something about as, as parents, right? We tell stories to teach our kids. Son, when I was a kid, let me tell you something. When I was in high school, right, we, we teach our kids with, with propositions, but we also teach them with stories. Stories are very helpful. And so the five books of Moses, the Torah, the books of Moses, the law of Moses, as it's called, or the Pentateuch, Penta 5, 
Tevkos in Greek means container or a thing that has stuff in it, like a book. So also it can mean scroll or book. So the Pentateuch means the five scrolls or the five books of Moses, okay? When we look at the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, we find that there are there are different categories in there. There are, there are laws that are clearly just simply moral. Do not lie. There are laws that are, for the most part, purely separating from the culture around them. Do not eat bacon, right? No ham, kosher laws. Everyone else ate bacon, so you can't eat bacon. Why did they have those laws? Not that God has a problem with bacon, it's good stuff, but but that because everyone else ate pork, pork flesh. So if Israel doesn't eat pork flesh, that means you can't have a dinner at your neighbor's house, your Canaanite neighbor, Philistines can't invite you over for a barbecue the next day. So keeps you separated from your neighbors around you. And that means it keeps your children from playing with their children. And therefore, your children eventually marrying their children and eventually worshiping their gods. That's the whole purpose of the kosher laws. Then there are also occasionally laws, or many laws, that are both moral and separating. And think of the, the law, I am the Lord your God, shall have no other gods before me. Right? Israel worshipped only one God, therefore he couldn't go to worship in a temple of a pagan God of one of his neighbors. So it separates, but it's also moral, because the one you worship is the one you become like. You spend time with someone, you're going to act like them, talk like them. When you worship Michael Jackson, or you worship Snoop Doggy Dog, or I don't know what the kids are watching today. When you do that, you're going to become like them, you act like them. Some of you are old enough to remember maybe Elvis, right? So it's the people, right, acting like him, dancing like him, dressing like him, talking like him, right? You act like the one you're with. God created us with an incredible gift to become like the one we spend time with. And so we grow in the image and likeness of our Christian spouse, and together we grow into the image and likeness or the hub or our God. Okay, so what did the people do? So we had these laws, do not lie. Do not eat bacon, right? Don't worship foreign gods. What did the people do? As you know the story, you can read about this in First and Kings. They lied. They stole. They committed adultery, right? all this. They, they worshiped other gods. They ate the food of the other, of the other nations and intermarried with them. And so they become like the nations from which they were taken. And so God says, you're out of here. He sends the prophets to warn them ahead of time. But they didn't listen. And God told him, finally, that's it. Because you have gone off to worship the other gods and become like the nations from which I drew you, you were supposed to draw the nations to me, and you've been drawn back to the nations. And so I'm going to send you back from where you came. And so he sends the descendants of Abraham back to Chalcedon, back to Chaldea, back to Mesopotamia, from which Abraham had originally come. A very physical image of what had happened to the people. But that's not the end of the story. God also sent them many prophets many prophets. And the prophets told of a restoration that was coming. Turn with me to Gen Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. So in your Bibles, open up right out in the middle, you get to Isaiah or wisdom. As you turn right, you get to your prophets. Jeremiah uh, is right after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 is a very important text. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Online that word new. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not, and one word not, like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, 
though I was their fa- their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. Okay, so God's going to somehow put his word, not on stone tablets, so you can say, look, that's what God says to do. But rather, he's going to put it inside of us. It'll be programming on the inside, software uploaded or downloaded or something, okay, into us so that we then operate according to God's word. We don't look outside of it. It's inside of us. We, we, we operate according to his, his, his will somehow. You can read Ezekiel 36 also. Ezekiel 36, a famous text, I will sprinkle clean water. I'll, be clean. I'll put my spirit within you so that you will walk according to my way and keep my commandments, my, my law. Joel says this as well. Joel chapter 2, quoted in, in Acts the Apostles. The day is coming when I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon your men, your women, your maidservants, your children, your children, and they'll all prophesy. What's going on here? What are we talking about? Well, the word of God, the covenant that joins God and man, right? In the garden that they broke, God gives his word again at Mount Sinai to reunite that word that was rejected in the garden. God gives his word again to them. That's called the Torah and Mount Sinai. And they join back in a relationship with God. But then, of course, things fall apart. But then, but then God says in the in the new he'll give a new covenant, a new relationship with in which they have an opportunity to join back to him again. And this time, finally, completely, which they will walk according to his way. And when we talk about breath or spirit, spirit and breath is the same word in Hebrew and Greek. So, so when God puts his breath into individuals, they now speak his word. Try speaking without breathing, right? As I'm talking right now, I keep inhaling, right? So I can talk. If you let all your air out, you can't talk. So you always find the prophets God gives his spirit, and then now they speak God's word. They all go always go together, right? Of course. All right. So now, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2. These are called the New Testament as well. Now let's flip over to the New Testament and see the conclusion of the story. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can hear what's going on there, right? That's right out of the wisdom literature. John expects you know Proverbs chapter 8, Wisdom 7, Wisdom 9, Sirach 24, and all of that, right? Okay, so the Word of God takes on flesh to show us what Adam was supposed to be, a man filled with the Word of God, the wisdom of God, God's will, right? Okay, so now, and, and as long as we're in John chapter 1, flip over to John chapter 6, you can hear this. Look at look what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, this is verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Right? So what was given in the old covenant was like a, a precursor. It's like smelling the Thanksgiving meal when you walk into the house. But the meal is the New Testament, right? So Jesus is the fullness of what they got a sense of in the old covenant. There's an identity. There's a relationship. But the fullness of it comes in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says about the law, he says this, at, this is the 
on the Mount of Beatitudes, his, his opening speech at the beginning of his ministry. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Think not that I have come to abolish the Torah, the law, the direction, and the prophets. The prophets were basically commentary upon the Torah from the Jewish mind. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, but to fulfill them. And so as we listen to the rest of his commands here in verse 21, verse 20, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already broken the commandment. You've heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not commit adultery. I said, if you'd lust after a woman, you've already broken the commandment. So what Jesus is directing them here, directing, right? Like an arrow. He's put them back in the direction. He says, look, the, the, the old covenant was like the training wheels, okay? We got to take the training wheels off and ride straight line now, okay? So if you lust, if you never lust everyone, you're not going to commit adultery. If you never are angry, you're not going to kill somebody. Because in the end, we're supposed to love that woman with our whole heart. We're supposed to love that brother with our whole heart. So we would never be angry. We would never lust. He's directing them back to the fulfillment of the command, the idea behind this, the root of it all. In Mark chapter 7, flip over to Mark chapter 7 for a second. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking about food and the kosher laws here. And the Pharisees are upset because his disciples were eating with hands and washed and things. We've dealt with this in other studies. But it's a very interesting text here. It says in chapter 7 of Mark, verse 14, he called the people to him and said, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of man which by going into him can defile him. But the things which come out are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people and disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and passes on? Thus, I'd highlight this, he declared all foods clean. Bacon's in. Okay? Why? Well, because he's going to tell his disciples to go out and convert the nations. In order to do that, they might have to eat bacon once in a while when they get in the house. Okay, the purpose is to spread the gospel as Israel was called to do in the Old Testament and failed to do. He called them from the nations so that they could eventually bring the nations to them and through them to God. They failed to do that. They went back to the nations. And so in the new Israel, the disciples, the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes following the law of God, Jesus Christ, following the Torah from the new Sinai, they're going to go out to the nations now and bring them in, bring the nations to God. In order to do that, Kosher laws are out because the purpose of the kosher laws was simply to keep them separated from nations until they finally got mature enough to not worship pagan gods. The disciples are belong way beyond that. The Jews are beyond that in the first century. They're not worshiping pagan gods anymore. They've moved beyond that. They've matured since the Babylonian exile. Matthew chapter 20, 22. Matthew chapter 22. Back to Matthew for a second here now. Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. And we'll go up to verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that they had, he had signed the Sadducees, they came together. And one of the law, the lawyers, expert in the Torah, asked him a question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The Torah. This is verse 37. And he said, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That means monotheist, 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 not a divided heart worship of other gods. 
This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Upon these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. That's it. He says, this is the whole point of the law and the prophets is to get you back to worshiping the one true God, your loving father from the garden, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to restore the relationship that's broken the garden with your father, and therefore with your fellow man. Matthew's gospel ends in chapter 28. Turn over to chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Look at this. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go out to the nations. Go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close. So what's the... Is there a conflict between the Torah, the Word of God in the Old Testament, and Jesus in the New? No, there's no conflict. How can he say, go out to the nations, when in the Old, it said, you cannot do that? Well, it's the same thing as, like I said, when you when your you know, five-year-old wants to help with the dinner at night, and you give them a little simple job to maybe peel the lettuce off the head. When they come home from college, you're going to give them a knife and tell them, chop the lettuce. You haven't changed. Your child has grown up, has matured, changed, and understands how to properly use the created world in front of them without hurting themselves. Huh? So let's look and see what Paul does in our conclusion here. What does Paul, our theologian here, tell us about all of this? So in the, in the after Jesus ascended, the disciples, they went out and they did these things. And there were many debates among the Jewish Christians about what, what do we do with these Gentiles? Do they have to keep kosher? Do they need the circumcision? Do they need, they need no bacon? What are we going to do? And so Paul had to write letters. A first council in Acts 15 was held about this. And he's going to send you some links on Paul and Acts the Apostles. We talked about these things in other studies. But Paul wrote two very important epistles where he really nails this issue, that the Torah is of the Old Testament is no longer in effect because it has been fulfilled in the incarnation of the word in Jesus. So let's look at a couple of quick texts here. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I should put Torah here. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being would justified in the sight, in, in his sight, by the works of the Torah circumcision, kosher laws, etc. Since through the Torah comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the Torah, he says, is basically it's like a light shining in the darkness. Psalm 119, verse 105. Right? Psalm 119, verse 105. My, your, your, your law, O Lord, your word, O Lord, is like a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Right? It shows you like a flashlight where the stumbling blocks are on the path, but it can't stop you from stumbling. It can just show you what you should look out for. And so the Torah was like that. It was... it truly revealed what was wrong in this world, but it couldn't keep you from doing what was wrong. That was something you had to make a decision about, and you couldn't really do that without the grace of God. And that grace of God, the gift of God, the charis of God is Jesus Christ, and Paul will make that point here. So he goes on, he says, in, and this is in chapter 2, verse 12, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the Torah, although the Torah and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, trust in his word. For there is no distinction since all have sinned, no distinction, Jew versus Gentile, since all have sinned 
all fall short of the glory of God. They're justified by his grace as a gift. Charis means grace means gift. Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to recede by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Okay, so, so faith in Christ, his redemption, which is in Christ. How does that happen? Well, already, Jesus already said, go out and baptize all nations, right? Entrance into the church, into the body of Christ. We'll see that again in a second. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting as Jews? Is it excluded? On what principle? On the principle of works? Works of the Torah? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith, faith in Christ, apart from the works of the Torah. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And he will justify the circumcised, the Jews, on the ground of their faith, and the uncircumcised on the ground of their faith. Do we overthrow the Torah by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the Torah. And in chapter 4, he now explains this. Look, Abraham, when was he called righteous? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Well, it was before. It was in chapter 15 of Genesis that he was called righteous because he trusted God. It's not until chapter 17, a couple decades later, he gets circumcision. And it's not till 400 years later that his descendants, the Israelites and Mount Sinai, get the kosher laws. So it's clearly not the kosher laws and circumcision and all of that that causes justification, righteousness, or proper relationship with God, but rather trusting in your father. It's a restoration of what Adam rejected in the garden, trusting in his word. And that's what Abraham did at that moment in, in Genesis 15. As we come to a close here, let's turn now to Romans chapter 6. How does this happen? An altar call? Uh, tingling in the bosom? Some spiritual indigestion? No. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, he says, this is verse 2, By no, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul talks about here that it's in Jesus that sin is conquered. What is sin? Breaking of relationship with God. Not the bringing of a rule, but bringing of a relationship. The rule is intended to protect the relationship, to protect the individual. The restoration of the relationship in repentance in Jesus Christ, we are restored to our relationship with the Father. And if we are spiritually raised from the dead in Jesus Christ, restored to life, then our bodies will also be raised as well. If Adam's spiritual death brought about his physical death, then our life in Christ through baptism brings about a physical life with God eternal resurrection. And that's what Jesus says. That's the purpose of the Eucharist. We don't have time to get into this, but in John chapter six, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in me and in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Salvation is not flying off to the clouds to play the harps with the angels for eternity. Those who may go to the heavenly abode, that is a temporary state until Christ returns and brings the souls of the faithful departed and raise their bodies from the dead. The book of Revelation talks about this, the restoration of Eden. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, you can just write this down. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, all of you who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All of you who've been baptized have put on Christ. This is, this is 
dressing language, like putting on clothing. He says, verse, this is chapter three, verse 27. He says, for as many of you who are baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, are Christ's, that is your, his possession, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are blessed by God. And it's through you then that all the world need, then needs to be blessed. We have an incredible calling there. And then let's close with this. This is Romans chapter chapter 8. You can make a note for yourself, Galatians there also. We don't have time to read all this. Ephesians chapter 2. Read the whole chapter. It's absolutely gorgeous. Talks about all of this. Ephesians chapter 2. But uh, let's end here in Romans chapter 8 and 10. Romans chapter 8. Go back to Romans. Romans chapter 8 verses uh, verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How do you get into Christ? Baptism. Into Christ. So now you're in Christ. You're a member of his body. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, the Torah, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he can have sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in Christ, we are given that which could not be given through the Torah. The, it's like, again, think of the Thanksgiving meal. You walk into the house, oh, you can smell all the food, right? But you're not eating it yet. You might have rumbling in the tummy. It's still rumbling. You're not yet filled. It's only when you sit down and consume the meal. And so the Torah is it has a, a direct correlation to the incarnation of the word of God. But it's like the smell of the turkey bacon as you walk into mom's house, okay? It's sitting down. The meal is the new covenant in which you now are fulfilled. The law was simply a light, like a flashlight or a lamp, as Psalm 119 verse 105 says. You could see what was wrong, but it, wouldn't, it can't keep you from doing what's wrong. You might stray off path, off the path. You might be tempted by what you saw by the light. You might say, wow, that's not what I'm supposed to do, but boy, I'd like to do that. Okay. But what's different in the new covenant is the word of God by the spirit of God has been implanted in us. So that that word that was rejected by Adam is now accepted by us and is our driving force. It's an internal law now. And by God's grace, his kindness, his gift, we actually are enabled to do what the man in the old covenant couldn't do, to actually walk in God's ways because we have become partakers, as St. Peter says in his second epistle, of the divine nature. And so therefore, in our ending here, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We'll end with this. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Jews who have not yet accepted Christ, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the Torah, that everyone who has faith may be justified faith, trust in the word that was rejected by Adam, and we return to trust in that word. And telos in the Greek, 
Telos means the end of something. It also means it's fulfillment, it's fullness. Come to me, you who thirst and are hungry. And now we're also at the telos of our lecture. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to age of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian. Wow, we went like all through from the beginning to almost the end of the Bible. The law is all in the Bible, like everywhere. If I had another 10 minutes, Andy, we would have been in the book of Revelation. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Well, what a fabulous, fabulous lecture, really enlightening. And we've already got some good questions that have been coming in uh, as you've been speaking. Let's move into Q&A, Father. Sound good? Uh, Well. Only easy questions, right? Yes, only the easy ones. (laughs) Okay, so. Let's start with um, a lot of people trying to take what you have said here, um, looking at it from our perspective as Catholics, where we have rules and laws and things. And so um, what do you say to someone who's like, well, the Catholic Church has so many laws and that's wrong in light of what you were just saying about the Torah? So, I mean, well, uh, it just like I was saying before, laws are intended, rules or laws are intended for the good of the person who is under those laws or rules, normally, unless you have an unjust government or an uh, abusive parent or something like that, right? Or an abusive teacher or something, whoever's an abusive boss. But in the normal sense of the word law or rules, in our normal experience, uh, or at least what you'd hope for, the ideal, is that laws or rules are always intended for the good of those under the law. So when I was a kid, the speed, speed limit was 55. Right? There's a federal speed limit. You guys, Some of you remember that. Now you can drive as fast as you want in some places. But, but 55, why did the federal government make that law? Well, they had had studies upon studies upon studies upon studies that when you went beyond the number 55, that the rate of accidents and and fatalities significantly started to increase. So they said, well, 55 was just right. That's just about the safe thing. Don't go above 55. So there's a national speed limit, right? Was the federal government trying to keep us from getting to our job on time? Was the federal government trying to keep us from getting to where we wanted to go in an efficient manner? No, it was trying to help, right? Now, today, cars are much more efficient. You drive 55 in a modern vehicle, and it feels like you're going like 10 miles an hour, right? So uh, so things have changed, and so they've adjusted those things, right? Cars have changed. The government, ideally, is still supposed to be helping to protect us. And so what's happened is vehicles have changed, people's driving skills have changed, whatever, et cetera. And so the, the adjustment is there. So when God gives laws, parents give laws to their kids, uh, those laws sometimes change. It's not that the parent changes, not that God changes or whatever, but rather the individual, there's been some change in the individual, some maturity or something. And so when we talk about sin, we get to a, there is the average person today, and this is a real tragedy. When they think of sin, they think of breaking of a rule. But sin, if I could teach it anything, nothing else, sin is not the breaking of a rule. It is the breaking of a relationship. It is the breaking of a relationship. And, and, and God gives us his rules or his commands to help us not do something so foolish. And so 
so the church has rules or laws, you could say, or things like that to protect, right? There are rules, there are a lot of rules. I was just dealing with some uh, marriage canons with with a, a situ- with a couple. Um, and there were some rules or uh, from it was from another church where I had to deal with uh, canons, uh, canon law regarding our church and their church and how we're going to deal with the, the marriage things. And all those rules that are there are all intended for the good of the of the the, the future husband and wife and for the um, uh, for the churches involved, for the good of those involved, for their for their benefit, for their health, for their health, for their for their relationship. Relatedly, Father, um, what would you say to another Christian who basically says, well, I just love Jesus and that's all the rule I need? Well, you have to have the whole Happy Meal. You can't just pick the burger. So so in when we say Jesus saves or he's my savior, or he I mean, we say I ask that person, what do you what do you mean? All I need is Jesus. Well, he's my savior. So, OK, what do you mean by savior? Well, he saves me. Saves you from what? What's he going to save you from? Most many people say saves me from sin. I'd say, and death. Hello, but most Christians are dualists today. But the but the the word savior is from the Old Testament. The savior was a title of the king. He was the one when the enemy came to attack a city. The king went out leading the fight with his army. He was on the front line. He he was the mighty warrior, and he would save you from your enemies. And so when the king came back, having defeated the enemy that was about to attack the city, you saw your king as your savior, the one who saves you from death, from being killed by your enemies. Your enemy is sin. Death is what they want to do to you. Death is what sin does to you, right? So what the enemy wants to kill you. So, so that word savior, when we talk about Jesus' savior, that's Old Testament-y language. And we got it. We have to understand that to understand why in the New Testament, the New Testament authors who were Jews understood Jesus as their Savior because He saved them from death. Now, in the Old Testament, where you see the role of the king, you can read this. Our Old Testament study dealt with this, uh, and you can read about this in First Samuel, chapter eight, and First Samuel chapter ten. There's other places, but chapters eight and ten would be the most detailed where you hear that when Saul is called by God, Samuel says, look, your job is to rule over God's people and save them from their enemies. Rule over God's people and save them from their enemies. A king is the one who sets the rules of the city. This is what we're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. And you obey the words of the king. Otherwise, when a city is being attacked by an enemy, and that city has forsaken the laws of the king. The king does not come with his army to save the city. There's no reason to do it. Let's say he says to the city, this is what you do, this is what you do, and this is how much taxes you pay each year. But the city does not do what he says, does the opposite, and does not pay taxes. Why in the world would the king go and save that city? So that language of savior has to be understood in the Old Testament. Savior is one who rule the king rules over you and saves you from your enemies. If Jesus is my king, if Jesus is my Christ, my anointed king, then I expect him to save me because I'm doing what he says to do. I'm one of his citizens of his city. It's a whole happy meal. You can't have one of the other. Now, that whole conversation we're having right now, 
is all post Luther. Okay. And I, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, if you look at all of their questions they were raising was how, how are you saved? What does Jesus do to save you? How does an individual get saved by Jesus? What were they, why were they asking these questions? If I were to ask you, how is salvation, where does salvation begin as a baby? You say, well, baptism. And then what? Hopefully you'd say confirmation next, but you might say first confession, but, and then, and then Eucharist and then confirmation. You're saved by entering into the kingdom of God and remaining in the kingdom of God. But at Luther, Calvin's his time, the sacraments initiation were a total disaster. They had separated them out. You still, those of you who are Roman Catholics, have seen the proper historic way to do these sacraments. At an Easter vigil, you'll see it hopefully in some of your parishes soon. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. All three, one service, in that order. By the time you get to Calvin, Zwingli, Luther, baptism, chrismation, Eucharist, confirmation, Eucharist, were separated out by years of time. And so people began to wonder, well, what's the relevance of the Eucharist? Does it really do anything? Is it even really the Jesus? People begin to ask questions about confirmation. What is it? Is it even necessary? What do you need? Well, I guess it's only baptism. Because that's all they do in the early, that's, what, that's all they do to our babies when we bring them to the church. I gave a whole lecture on this called the Sacraments of Initiation, Blood and Water. Blood and Water, the Sacraments of Initiation, Andy Mitchell can send it to you. Uh, and where we talk about this, we've got to restore this. People's, the modern Protestant questions about salvation, how am I saved, what is salvation, and what is baptism, confirmation, you guys have to do with it, is historical problem that goes back to the time of Luther. Lexerandius lex credendi. We believe as we pray. And so if we've changed our liturgical celebration of the sacraments, then we're going to change people's understanding of what they do or what they mean. Anyway, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Annie, any other questions? Yeah, Mara here on screen. Thank you, Father. Really quick. Can we get the uh, spelling of kana in Greek and tising in Latin, please? Uh, sure. Now, I hope, do you guys all have me on speaker view, I hope? I have you on, on uh, what do you call it, gallery view, so I can see all your faces. Oh, I just see me. But I hope you have a speaker view so you can see this. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be able to read this. This would be like little tiny ants on the board. Okay. So uh, the words, let's start out, some of the words we talked about. So kana in Hebrew. So I'll put this down. I have to flip it around because this is written the other way. Okay, so I'm going to put it the other way. This is a verb in Hebrew. This is a verb in Hebrew meaning to purchase or to have or possess. The first time it occurs in the Hebrew Bible is in Genesis 4, where Eve says, uh, "The Lord uh, has given me, you know, has given me a son. I have purchased him." Or so. This is the birth of Cain. In fact, Cain, Kana, his name comes from this. Okay. Uh, in, um, what was the other word? Teasing, I think you oh. said. Okay, so uh, teasing. Teasing is a Greek verb. I'll write it in English. Teasing, teasing. My English writing is very poor. My father was a doctor, so that's my excuse. Okay, so, um, so the uh, teasing means to create, to make, to bring about. It has all sorts of different range about it. It usually gets translated as create 
And then that creates some problems in our translation sometimes. When we talk about, so the word of God was created? The wisdom of God was created? No, this is a translation from the Greek or from the Hebrew. And we got to kind of massage it a bit because it's a translation. So just like the word law is a translation, we got to massage it and understand its context. If, if, if you follow the logic that God created wisdom or created his word, before he created his word or wisdom, God could not speak or he was not wise. Right? It's completely insane. He wouldn't know how to create wisdom if he was not already wise. It's completely nuts. So obviously, wisdom of God, the word of God is not created in the sense that we think it comes about in a certain moment of time. But the, those texts are trying to deal with the mystery of speaking how before everything was created, this was begotten or this was came about in a certain sense. Makes sense. It's Thank speaking you, of mystery, the Trinity, the uh, you know, right, the the begetting of the Son from the Father from eternity. This is eternal. This is not in time. It's a mystery. Okay, we'll get you out of here on this one, Father. Um, does the Church have laws that bring about separation from the nation, so to speak, and and kind of coupled with that? Um, in our modern times, you know, effectively surrounded by a pagan culture. What do we need to do? What things are necessary to keep Catholics from falling into pagan culture by immersion? That's a great one. Do we have like an hour? <laughs> okay. So uh, that's great. So Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is, if we are in Christ, we're different from the world around us, right? We, we are clearly different. We do not steal. We do not lie. We do not commit adultery. We do not lust. We don't. We walk and we love God and our neighbor as ourselves. And in fact, as Jesus taught, He said, "I give you a command." The Gospel of John: Love each other as I have loved you. How can we do that? It's impossible. It is. It's impossible for man to love man as God loves unless man becomes God. This is what Saint Peter says in Second Epistle, chapter one, verse four: We become partakers of our nature. We are members of the body of Christ, and through His grace. We can actually begin to love each other as God loves us. This is for eternity, of course. This is a, a long, long process. So, so as we live our Christian life, as we walk according to the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, we are, we are certainly different from the world around us. When someone walks out into our house, they should know that this is a Christian home. Why? Because a Christian home is going to have a cross right on the door. I don't want to cross my door. What if people know I'm a Christian? <laughs> exactly. You need to cross the door. So when they come in your house, do they see Christian imagery? When it's time to eat, do we pray a Christian meal? Do we stand and pray? Don't sit during your meal prayer. That's Protestant. So do you stand and pray? Do we make the sign of the cross? Do we, when someone gets in our car for a ride from work or a ride to work, they get in, they see immediately in the car, cross, maybe there's a, a, a rosary, a prayer rope, como skinny in the east, hanging from the... So is there something indicating this is a Christian car? And when they turn, when you turn on the radio or the, hey, you want to listen to anything? Yeah, sure, whatever. Turn it on. And do they hear the church music? Or do they hear Snoop Doggy Dog or whatever people are listening to? I don't know. So... When people interact with us, they should experience the presence of God, the ways of God, the laws of God. They should realize that, wow, this guy's different. And sometimes Christians, some of you could probably tell stories. 
at work maybe or in the neighborhood where someone came up to you at some point and said, uh, John, I've noticed you're a little different than the rest of the guys at the coffee pot. You, when we're talking about stuff, you, you don't seem to be hip with that. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Can you tell me a little bit about Jesus? Right, so this is an opportunity that separation from the nations can also, also and is tended to be the magnet, the draw, the attraction of the nations to God. We have been drawn to God in Jesus Christ, as Israel was in the Old Testament, but now through the divine nature, so that all the nations can be drawn into him, so that through us, the descendants of Abraham, all the nations can be blessed and brought back into the family of God, and God's original plan can continue. He desired create man and put him in the Garden of Eden and to dwell with man on earth for all eternity. That's his plan, and it will not be thwarted by sin, by death, or the devil. Father, will you close us in prayer? Absolutely. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.